Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn in them to the book of Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9, that passage is printed in the bulletin, the first seven verses. But I'd ask if you have your Bibles to go ahead and turn there so you can follow along with me as well. Our focus this Christmas season has been going back into the Old Testament to look at Jesus as he was foretold by the prophets, looking at Jesus as he was prophesied, the the things they tell us about his character, the things they tell us about the nature of his work, all they tell us about who Christ was and what he would do. We've gone into the Old Testament, and so today we're in Isaiah chapter 9. This also is one of the more well-known of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, and I'm certain as I read it, it will be uh, familiar to your ears. When I read this, I'm going to read this, and I'm also going to read part of the prologue of John's Gospel. So after Isaiah 9, if you have your Bibles, turn quickly to uh, John chapter 1, and I'm going to read from John as well. But as is our custom, I'll ask if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word today? This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now I'd like to read also from John chapter 1. The first 14 verses. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word that is given by the inspiration of your spirit for the edification, the joy, the sanctification of your people. And so we pray that that same spirit will now open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see these good tidings, that we might believe and be glad, that we might rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ our Savior. Will you, by your Spirit, point all of our hearts towards him today? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. When I celebrate Christmas with the tell side of the family at my parents' house, we have two traditions that I particularly enjoy on Christmas Eve. The first tradition is that we will always go to the Christmas Eve service at my parents' church. And the second tradition is that we will not look at Christmas lights on the way home. I'm not exactly sure how that tradition got started, but I know on the way home from the Christmas Eve service, my mom will always suggest, why don't we drive around and look at Christmas lights? And and she'll want to go to one of those neighborhoods that every city has that just goes over and above with their Christmas decorations just to enjoy the festival of lights. And I believe when when I was younger and my brother was younger, my dad would uh, go along with that a little bit more and he would humor her. But as we got old, he would be more bold in his suggestions. No, how about we just go home? And after a couple years of that, we realized that we had a new tradition. We traditionally did not look at Christmas lights. And so my mom would throw out the suggestion, let's go look at Christmas lights. And we say, Mom, we can't break tradition. We, We must traditionally not look at the lights on our way home. And so we go home. And that is our Christmas tradition. But it's really the first tradition, isn't it, that's a little bit more significant. We go to the Christmas Eve service. And for me, I always love when we have a candlelight Christmas Eve service. Not only because it's beautiful, which it is, and not only because it's sort of sentimental, which it sort of is that also, but primarily because it's symbolic. Because there's a lot of symbolism that's tied up in that part of the service that at usually the end of the service, after the message has been given, they'll turn off all the lights in the sanctuary. And for just a moment, that darkness settles over everyone in the sanctuary. And you're always a little surprised at just how dark it can be in that room that previously was well lit and you felt comfortable, and now it's dark. And after just a moment, of course, one of the pastors or one of the the elders perhaps up front will light his, his match or a lighter and And you'll see, no matter where you are in the room, that just one match in a very dark room can make a big impact. And he'll light the candle of the person on the front row, and they share the flame with their neighbor. And as you watch, as the flame spreads, the light increases until everyone is holding a candle that's lit. And at their church, we always hold them up sort of for the last verse of Silent Night, and the room is just filled with light. And it's a... It's a beautiful, sentimental sort of thing that also pictures what we read about in these passages, that at Christmas we celebrate Jesus, who is the coming of the true light into a world of darkness. That even Isaiah foretells that that he lives in a time of deep darkness, when the whole world is suffering under the darkness of sin, 
the darkness of the oppression of unrighteousness and ungodliness, and he foretells that there is coming a time when the people who walked in darkness see a great light. And we read in John, he says, the true light has come into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of the light into a world of darkness. And so I want to offer some reflections this morning or this afternoon on, on Isaiah chapter 9, beginning by noticing the descriptions of the present darkness that Isaiah describes and that Isaiah feels, and then offering four reflections on the coming of the light of which he speaks. But first, it, it begins with the darkness. Chapter 9 itself begins with a recognition that in Isaiah's day, the people lived in a time of darkness. Verse 2 is the one we're perhaps most familiar with, uh, if not because we read it every Christmas, because we hear Handel's Messiah in play in our minds as we read this. And he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We see it also in verse 1 when he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The gloom is the darkness that is being dispelled by the coming of the light. And if we back up one more verse into the end of chapter 8, verse 22... Here's the end of chapter 8 when he says, They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so our passage begins with Isaiah's description that the world at his day is just filled with deep darkness. And perhaps we resonate with that. Do we ever feel like we live in a world that is filled with darkness? Are we ever tempted to a, a similar sort of despair to say that that is our experience that we are a people who live in deep darkness and walk in deep darkness. The testimony of Isaiah in this passage, and indeed we could say the testimony of history as well, is that Isaiah lived in a time of deep darkness. And we know that Isaiah, personally as a prophet, felt the impact of the darkness very profoundly, very personally. If we just think back three chapters in the book of Isaiah, if we we go back to chapter 6, it's another passage that we're very familiar with that here in chapter 6, the call of Isaiah, that he has this vision of God in his heavenly throne room. And Isaiah himself sees himself in the throne room before the throne of God. And this, we recognize this was a spiritual high point for Isaiah. This had to be something of a mountaintop experience for him, a transforming period in his life to see himself, even to have this vision of himself in the pure holy, righteous, perfect presence of a holy God. To hear that these seraphim around him calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And if we go to John chapter 12, we read of what John says, and he says, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. He tells us that the one that Isaiah saw when he was in that throne room in chapter 6 it was the pre-incarnate Christ. If what we do at Christmas is we celebrate that, that, that Jesus came from heaven and was born on earth, Isaiah is the prequel. Right? He sees Jesus before he comes to earth. In this vision, he's in heaven in the throne room seeing the pre-incarnate Christ and worshiping him there. And so we can imagine then what it must have been like for Isaiah to go to work the next day. To have spent time one day in the very presence of the holy God worshiping 
praising, adoring, seeing him in all of his beauty, and then to come and, and just to go back into his world, which he says is filled with deep darkness the next day. What must that have been like for him? We know he felt that darkness. We know how it is when you're in a bright room and suddenly the lights go off, the darkness feels very dark. After some time, you, you adjust, you get used to it. It doesn't feel as dark anymore, but at first, when you've been in the light, it feels very dark, and Isaiah went from the brightest of lights now to a land of deep darkness. And we could perhaps point to three types of darkness that Isaiah would have felt. Three types of darkness. First, there was political darkness in his day. We might be so cold, so bold, rather, as to call it systemic darkness. That was, it was through the government. We remember that, that Isaiah ministered during the reign of King Ahaz in Judah. And Judah had its fair share of bad kings, and King Ahaz was among the worst. King Ahaz was among the worst. You can read about him in 2 Kings 16 or 2 Chronicles 28. But we can notice also just in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 12, it says, But Ahaz said, Isaiah has, well, the Lord has told Ahaz to ask a sign. In verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he says, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? You hear the, just the exasperation that Ahaz is a king who does not listen to the word of the Lord. He says, is it, is it too little for you to weary men that you've taken on wearying God himself? But here's the description of King Ahaz from Second Chronicles 28. This is how he is described. It says, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. This was a bad, evil king. At one point, Isaiah rebukes him and tells him to put his trust in the Lord, and Ahaz refuses. And instead, he makes a covenant with the king of Assyria to gain his protection and his help rather than that of the Lord. Ahaz desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, during some of his travels to the land of Damascus, he saw a pagan altar that he was particularly fond of. And when he got back, he commanded his priest to make one just like it because he wanted a pagan altar himself. He desecrated the temple to such a degree that his son took over and his son wanted to cleanse the temple. And he appointed 14 men to cleanse it. It took them two and a half weeks to remove the idolatries out of the temple. That's how bad things had gotten, that there was that level of desecration in the temple of the Lord and that's the spiritual atmosphere in which Isaiah lived. When he says that he lives in a time of deep, deep darkness, it is a deep darkness. Just politically, the whole system is dark. But it's not just a political darkness. There was also personal and societal darkness. We have to account for our sin. We can't simply talk about the structures being broken. We have to admit that we too are broken. And Isaiah does... This, we remember in chapter 6, Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So the darkness is not merely out there. He says the darkness is in here as well. He, he recognizes and he accounts for the darkness of sin, which he feels in his own heart, says, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So the primary darkness that he feels is the darkness of sin. That he looks around and he sees the people who do not worship the Lord, who do not love the Lord. Rather, they love sin. 
we hear Isaiah say in, in chapter 8, verse 17. It says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. That's how Isaiah felt the deep, the depth of the darkness. He says, I will wait for the Lord, although he is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. He felt as though the darkness was simply so extensive and deep that the only way to account for it is that the Lord had hidden his face from him. And we hear that he's not merely objectively sort of recounting the facts, he's mourning this. He mourns the fact that he lives in a day that is characterized by the sinfulness of the people. Though they are to be the people of the Lord, they are characterized instead by uncleanness and sin, and the Lord hides his face from them. And so Isaiah knew his life personally was affected, and he mourned because of it. And no doubt many of us know how Isaiah feels. We know that sense of despair. We, too, have lived in a land of deep darkness. We see it all around us. Sometimes we even have to say we see it in the church. We see it in our families. We see it in our workplace. And indeed, we see it in ourselves. We say with Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips. Not only do I dwell among a people of unclean lips, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. And so there is this personal darkness of sin. And then the third darkness is spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness, the deepest and darkest of all, is, is to be totally cut off from God altogether. As the New Testament says, that, that the gods of this world have blinded the eyes of unbelievers. Having their eyes blinded so they cannot see because they do not know Jesus, they do not trust in Jesus. They are separated from God, without God, without hope in the world. But here's the good news that we proclaim at Christmas, that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. We proclaim a light that does not wait for us to come to him. We proclaim a light that comes into the world at Christmas, who pursues us, who enters our darkness and shines in such a way that the darkness cannot overcome it. The light comes to us. That's what happens at Christmas. This is the good news we proclaim, and so we do not lose heart. Although we can say, yes, we, we know how Isaiah feels. We live in that same world that Isaiah lived in. We see the darkness, but we don't lose heart because the light has come into the world and we know, we have seen, we have heard from this light who comes into the world. And so it's dark, but I want to offer four reflections on the coming of the light into the world because that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 9 is his description of the dawning of the light. Chapter 9, verse 1 begins, but there. We could just stop there and say this, this adversative word, but, is one of the great adversatives in the Bible. We can point to several others, uh, perhaps in Ephesians 2, 4, or Romans 3, 22 through 25, where he's described the problem and described our deadness and sin and says, but God, loves us, but God in his grace and in his mercy, and it's the same here in Isaiah 9, after this description of the deepest darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen great light. He describes in the first few verses here the joy that is theirs. We see it in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. We hear all these descriptions of joy. Verse 4, we have the, the description of the liberation from oppression, and from slavery, that uh, in, in his coming, 
The Savior breaks the yoke of his burden. He breaks the staff for his shoulder. He breaks the rod of the oppressor, as on the day of Midian. Verse 5, we have this description of these implements of war simply being turned into kindling for the fire because there is no war anymore. And so every boot and garment is burned as fuel for the fire. But it's really in verse 6, isn't it, that we have the clearest description of the coming light into the world. It's really in verses 6 and 7. This is the, the climax of Isaiah's prophecy here. Or perhaps in another way we could say it's, it's almost the anticlimax. When we feel with him the depth of darkness, when we feel the depth of despair that he's been feeling, and now things are turning to hope, and he's going to describe the Savior who is coming to rescue us from this, to take us out of this, to overcome the darkness. We almost expect him to describe some great conquering hero swooping in with guns blazing to overcome the darkness. But what do we hear instead? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The, the description here of the light breaking in is it's not overly triumphant or majestic. It's, it's almost humble, isn't it? We hear the description of this prophecy of somebody who's going to be born, who's not born yet, who, who in Isaiah's time would have to wait hundreds of years, and yet he said a son is born, a child is given to us, and he's going to be the one who comes in and overcomes all the darkness. And so here's four, four reflections on the coming of the light, four things that, that I see in these verses. First, I, I think this says to us that God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Because I don't know about you, but when I am feeling the depth of despair and darkness, when I'm in a time of suffering, I get a little bit impatient for God to act. You know, if I'm suffering through something, God can act and I'll give him, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, but then I start to despair. I want him to do something about it now. I don't want to have to wait for his deliverance to come. But Isaiah says his deliverance comes in a child that's going to be born. God says he's going to raise up a man to redeem us from all our sins and sorrows. He hasn't been born yet for Isaiah. From Isaiah's perspective, the promised deliverer wasn't even going to be born for 700 years. Things would get worse before they got better. But if we look back at verse 2, he says, you, he, doesn't, he doesn't say you will multiply or you will increase the joy he says you have you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy god's timing for revealing his deliverance is always up to him it's always up to him but here's what i think the spirit is saying through isaiah at this point he's saying you may not see the deliverance just yet there may be a period of waiting with great expectation, but God reveals the deliverer. We may not see the deliverance itself immediately, but God reveals his deliverer, and his timing in deliverance is always perfect. Isaiah called those of his day, that faithful remnant who listened to the word of the Lord, he called them to wait by faith. They didn't see Jesus swoop in in their own day and clear away all the darkness that they felt around them. They were called to wait. What they had was the prophetic word that directed their eyes to Jesus, who would reign forever, crowned with glory and honor, and they were simply called 
to live by faith with their eyes on Christ. To live by faith with their eyes on Christ. I picture them, if we remember that description of the candlelight service, at that moment when the lights all go off and there's great darkness, that that coming of the light when that first match is lit is like the birth of Jesus. Well, they're they're before that. But I picture what Isaiah says is, it's like he sees the, the elder get out the book of matches. And he tells them to rejoice. The light is coming to them. And they simply wait by faith. They simply wait by faith. And we are called to do the same thing, aren't we? Although we're later in the story, we now look back to the coming of the light into the world. It's, it's lighter now, perhaps, than then, because the light has come. And yet, we still wait for that great day when Jesus will be all in all. We still wait, as Hebrews 2 says, says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What Hebrews says is we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. We don't yet see the light having overcome every last corner of the darkness. But we see Jesus, and we, like Isaiah, are called to wait by faith with our eyes focused on Christ. We are called to wait for his timing. So his timing is always perfect. Second, we see his plan is always perfect. God's plan is always perfect. In this passage, one of the things we see is that that God, as it were, through the prophet Isaiah, tips his hand a little bit to reveal part of what his plan is for the dispelling of the darkness. He reveals part of his plan for the dispelling of the darkness. And as much as we may wish or desire that his plan would simply be to swoop in and dispel it all at once in one fell swoop. That's not his plan. That's not the way he chooses to work. Instead, he comes as a baby in a humble manger. It's this this doctrine of the incarnation that God becomes man born in a manger in Bethlehem, born to be one of us, that shows us just how much God loves us and cares for us. That's what shows us just how much God cares for us, that this same Jesus, who was reigning in glory and splendor in Isaiah 6, would choose then to come and to be born into the context of Isaiah 8, of great darkness, and to walk among us as one of us, to be born in the midst of our darkness, to feel it, to know its power. And that's what we learn about Jesus in the Gospels, is it not that that Jesus knew the darkness of losing loved ones? And he wept. Jesus knew the darkness of having family members who did not believe in him. Jesus knew the darkness of being rejected by friends who he thought he could trust. Jesus knew the darkness of unrelenting temptation. He knew the darkness of political oppression. He knew the darkness of personal loneliness. And ultimately, Jesus knew the darkness of feeling as though God was hiding his face from him. Because he went to the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what it felt like to think God and to know as a fact that God was hiding his face from him. And that was God's plan, that that Jesus would defeat the powers of darkness, not by overwhelming them with strength, but by the weakness of a child walking among them and taking all of that sin and all of that darkness onto himself letting it be crushed by God in his own punishment at the cross and rising again in the glory of a new day. That he has overcome 
the darkness. And so we can look and see and say, yes, God's plan is always perfect. Because in the incarnation, we have a God who's not only high and lifted up, but also meek and lowly and dwells with those who are humble in heart. Because we see Jesus in Isaiah 6 as transcendent and glorious, therefore we can worship him, we can trust his promises, we can sing of his glory, we can have faith in his unchanging word, we can proclaim him with great confidence. But also because in Isaiah 9, Jesus is God with us, near to us, therefore we lean on his compassion. We find comfort in his presence. We have a model for sacrificial living. We have a model for ministering and serving others. And so we see that God's plan is always perfect. Third, we see in this passage, God's character is always perfect. God's character is always perfect. And here we have at the end of chapter, or the end of verse 6, these four wonderful names that are familiar to us, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor because he has been born in the midst of our darkness, because he's walked among us, because he knows what it is to live a human life, because he was tempted in every way and yet without sin, because he knows what it is to have our pain and affliction, to feel the despair because of the darkness. He is our wonderful counselor. We hear uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. See, almost always in the scripture, it, it points us to Jesus. And when it tells us to have confidence in Jesus, when it tells us that Jesus knows our needs and knows our struggles and knows who we are, it points to the incarnation. I mean, Jesus is, is perfect God with, with all knowledge and with all wisdom. And yet, when it tells us to trust him, it points to his human life. It says he walked among us. Therefore, we trust him. Therefore, he is our wonderful counselor because he is one of us. He is a human like us. Because he suffered when he was being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he has walked in our shoes. And to me, that shows that Jesus knows an awful lot about the human heart and that he loves us very much. Because when you've gone through suffering, you know that all, you know, all words of comfort are nice, but there's nothing like having a friend or a, a counselor or a comforter who has been through what you're going through. There's just nothing else as comforting as someone else who's been through that exact path that you are now walking and can speak words of comfort and words of presence to you. And that's the direction that Jesus goes. And so to be our wonderful counselor, he himself became human and walked among us. That shows me that Jesus knows quite a bit about us. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Because to be a mighty counselor, he, he had to not only be human and walk among us, but also he had to be perfect. He, he had to be God. He had to be divine. He had to be infinite. I might share your experiences, but that doesn't make me a wonderful counselor. Because I'm not perfect in every way as Jesus is, and yet without sin, Jesus is both sympathetic and perfect because he is the eternal God. He's an everlasting father. Don't get tripped up here because it says he's father, and we say, well, he's the son. Isaiah is not writing a systematic theology textbook here. He's giving us comfort. He says Jesus is to us as a father in his tender care. 
He has the love of a father for his children. He, he has the, the sympathy of a father to look on us and to care for us. What father is there that would not gladly trade places with any child who is going through suffering and distress? He says that's where Jesus is as well. He's an everlasting father. He's a prince of peace. We remember most of the darkness of Isaiah's day came from the fact that they suffered under bad, unjust, unrighteous, ungodly kings. And when Jesus comes, he is the prince of peace who rules in all righteousness and justice and glory. He's perfect in every way and will rule over his people. His timing is always perfect. His plan is always perfect. His character is always perfect. And lastly, God's zeal is always perfect. And I want us to look at verse 7. And, and this point is particularly for those who, who are feeling the deep darkness this year, who are longing more than usual in their heart for that day when Jesus is all in all and when the light dispels all of the darkness and yet who struggle to wait for that day who are feeling the darkness and struggling to wait, listen to the truth of verse 7. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The reign and the rule of Jesus is unstoppable. Its increase knows no end. Those candles in the Christmas Eve service continue to spread. There is no end to them. The light gets greater and greater, and it will be greater next year than it is today when Jesus is greater than he is today. So take heart. His reign is unstoppable. He will reign and rule with justice and with righteousness. That will be a great day when Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and rules over all in justice because where Jesus reigns, justice reigns. Where Jesus reigns, righteousness reigns. No longer will there be oppression. No longer will there be suffering under an injustice. And finally, he says at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In case there were those who heard the words of his prophecy and thought, this is wonderful, but it's just too good to be true. When will this ever happen? It, it, you know, I'd love to believe this, but I just struggle to. Isaiah says, put your hope and your confidence in God because it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that is the guarantee that these promises will be fulfilled. These don't rest on the fallibility of a human word. They don't rest on the weakness of human desire to see them be fulfilled. He says they rest on the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He will accomplish this. Although the day may seem slow in coming to us, it will most surely come to pass. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why 2,000 years after the fact we still celebrate the fact that the light has come into the world because the darkness has not overcome it. And it cannot overcome it because it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that is accomplishing this. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the great light of the world, coming into the midst of the darkness to shine among us, to give us light shining in our hearts, the light of the glory of God. And the darkness, as John says, will not, has not, overcome it. It never will. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we praise you today for Jesus, our Savior. We praise you for Jesus, who is preexistent in glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit together, one perfect God, who in his humility and in his love 
was born of a virgin, born among us, walked among us, was tempted and yet was without sin, knew what it was to live in the world of darkness and sin, in the brokenness that sin had brought, and yet he took it on himself going to the cross that we might live with him in a perfect world of light. On that day when he reigns over all, and we live in a world that needs no sun because Jesus, the light, is there. And so, Father, we long for that day. We pray that at Christmas this year we will uh, be renewed in our hope. We will be renewed in our faith. We will be renewed in our love and in our joy and our peace and our patience, our kindness, our goodness, our faithfulness, our gentleness and our self-control because we find ourselves again in the presence of Christ. Lord, it's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen.